0: We are recording. Good morning, good day, and good evening. Welcome to episode 180 of Tech of a Tea. Today, we have a really interesting guest. Welcome to the show, Jeremy Sola, the benevolent dictator for life of Redox. Redox? Redox? How do you actually say the name? Redox. Redox. And also a Pop OS maintainer. Welcome to the show. How's it going? Thanks for having me. After dealing with that mess of your three different microphone setups, I'm happy we got to something that sounds good. Um, I don't know what was happening with one of those where it just sounded absolutely horrible.
1: Oh, I have more microphones
0: if you want. (laughs) Yeah, I have more microphones as well, but this is the one that I'm going to use. Too many. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, you know, just... You have one that works, just stick with that one. The rest of them, they can just sit wherever they are.
1: Yep. Okay.
0: Yeah, so uh, I guess the best place to start is... Before we get into, obviously, like, the Popware stuff and the Redox stuff, let's just talk about, like, your origin into computing and sort of work our way up from there. So how long have you been, like, you know, just not even just in the, the FOSS world, just how long have you been playing around with computers? How long have you been doing programming stuff? Like, what's your origin? How would you get into this, basically?
1: I've been messing with computers for a very long time. Uh, I don't even remember when I started. So, um... Uh... But I do remember the first computer I had,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I was around 10 years old and my dad bought me a twenty five dollar laptop and that was twenty five dollars at that time. Right. So you can imagine how terrible it was. Uh, it had probably four megabytes of RAM. It was running DOS, some version of DOS, uh-huh. and uh, I just played some games on it and, and started out there. Uh, but I didn't really get into programming until I had better equipment. So um, after after I turned, I think, 12, I, I started programming in Visual Basic at the time. We didn't have Internet, so it was basically whatever programming language you could get an IDE for uh, from the store. And so the, uh, we were in some bookstore and there was a CD for Visual Basic six uh, and we just bought it and I installed it. And, and that's when I started. And then a few months later, we got internet. And uh, at that point, I started uh, to branch out. I, I downloaded Linux. I, um, I started playing around with different things. And I learned my second language after, after basic. I can't really say I learned Visual Basic. I mean, you can't really learn something like that. <laughs> it was so terrible, Microsoft kind of. Killed the whole thing. Um, technically, there's Visual Basic.net, but yeah, I don't know anybody that uses it. Uh, I So yeah, I, I started learning uh, x86 Assembler. And I was interested in, in doing operating system stuff. So at, at that time, uh, the only two languages I knew were Assembler and Visual Basic.
0: What a list. That's actually <laughs> that's such a yeah. great list so how did you get yourself into doing assembler stuff then it's just yeah it was
1: uh there was just finding documentation online Mm -hmm. especially uh and and just trying to learn how to write some dos programs and then branching out from there i wrote a bootloader and then i was writing a kernel and and this first operating system i attempted uh had a very creative name it was solar os which is just my last name os <laughs> um and uh, after probably three years or so of messing around with that i finally published it online and uh it's just i don't know i was working on it as a hobby while at the same time learning more about linux and not really programming in any other languages until later i learned some java I learned some some C, but it wasn't really until um, until I started uh, started working that that I got into more languages than that. Mm-hmm.
0: So when you say you were using Linux, what were you using at the time?
1: The first version of Linux I ever used was Turbo Linux six, which is not something a lot of people will have heard of. But again, we didn't have internet at the time, and the uh, my dad would would just take me to computer stores and stuff and whatever they had that was cheap is what we would get. And Red Hat was too expensive and that was pretty much the only other thing that they sold as a CD in a store. Uh, So at some point he got his hands on Turbo Linux 6 and I installed that and uh, it it really sucked in every way, shape and form. Like uh, I had, I actually rebuilt my first desktop computer so I have it sitting right next to me it's a Pentium 2 with an Asus P2B motherboard. And uh, the motherboard, I think, is from 1997. And uh, so that, I actually built a computer around that in like 2000 for 400 bucks total, including the case, everything. So it was already out of date. And turbolink 6 was also out of date by a few years. And they managed to barely work together in a in a in a way that might make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to hack it a lot because I had scuzzy drives and Turbolink six did not really like that very much. <laughs> so getting the drives to actually work was a pain and then getting audio to work in any form shape or factor was a pain. Um, and then at, uh, after about a year of that uh, we got internet I think it was in two thousand three, okay. and it was like, yeah, that's like the opening of the whole universe. Before then, we had internet. I mean, I had dial up, and I sure. I came up with some creative ways to to get the dial up provider to give me more minutes, <laughs> and and try to to keep working off of free trials. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, we had dial up, and and once we finally got actual broadband internet Mm -hmm. back when they called it broadband and it was still only like one megabit per second uh i managed to download fedora core 4 Ah. and install it um and yeah and that was the the first real linux install i had Mm -hmm. because without internet it's kind of a dead system uh but once i had that installed then i could upgrade it and uh I do remember getting Wi Fi to work was a pain, but it was still a lot easier than than Turbo Linux 6, which is a distribution made by a Japanese company that no longer exists. Mm -hmm. It was not like good in any shape, form, or factor, but it was available.
0: Well, you know, available is always better than not available. And considering you'll say, how much was Red Hat at that point? Like, if you.
1: I don't know. It was a hundred bucks or something. That was too much.
0: Yeah. Okay. Especially back then, the like that's, that's a lot more CDs
1: from work, mm-hmm. so they were free.
0: Oh, <laughs> yeah, I had no money. Yeah, so. no, that's fair. <laughs> so you made your way onto Fedora Core, and then I guess the rest is pretty much history.
1: Well, I stayed there for a while, mm-hmm. just going back and forth between Gnome and KDE, and eventually Ubuntu came out, and I I switched to it, uh, and I was running Gnome two. Mm-hmm for for a couple releases and then switched to KDE. And I really really liked KDE 3 for a very long time it felt like. Although it was probably only like a year and a half, but it felt like a really long time because I was so young. Mm-hmm. Uh and then KDE 4 came out and I'm like, "What? What is this?" I'm going to switch I... to GNOME. And then GNOME GNOME 3 came out and I'm like, "Oh, what what is this?" And yep. then Unity came out and then nope. I switched yep. to Unity and I stayed there for a little bit. And then finally I warmed up to the to the Gnome design mm-hmm. and went back to Gnome 3 and I was running Ubuntu Gnome at the time that System 76 hired me.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And
1: I I floated the idea to Carl who who is the CEO of of System 76, "Hey, we should we should try to do something like the Gnome spin of Ubuntu." Uh, But include a later kernel, include the NVIDIA drivers, include uh, newer MESA, things like that, so that we don't have to have as many problems shipping hardware.
0: Hmm.
1: And that's where POP came from.
0: That was... Carl's
1: decision to... What year was that? That That was 2018. 2018. uh, 2017, and then we released in 2018, 1804. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, we had a 1710 release. Uh... Ubuntu 17.10, and then we made Pop-OS 17.10, but I would not qualify that as a real release because it was kind of more like a beta release, and then we had a bunch of features we built up for the 18.04 release. So in 2018, uh, we released it with the recovery partition, with the new installer, with the upgrade feature, so a bunch of things were built in that that now are critical to uh, Pop-OS. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So with that... so. With 17.10, that was sort of just getting it like mostly pieced together. It wasn't exactly ready at that point, you would say.
1: Yeah, at 17.10, we were using Ubiquity as the installer, which Mm -hmm. was the Ubuntu installer at the time. And we were basically pre-filling it with drivers support, like uh, the NVIDIA driver for the NVIDIA ISO. And we were also doing some modifications to packages running on the... Uh, Yeah, new new drivers for things.
0: Your audio just got way louder for some reason.
1: I might have to move (laughs) Ah, Like uh, there's someone mowing
0: outside. Ah Yeah, if you want to take a quick break we can unless
1: We might have to yeah, I'm gonna have to go upstairs. Okay,
0: totally fine so you're talking about the 17.10 release. You're saying you're getting like driver modifications in with ubiquity and yeah, that's that's pretty much where we were just at.
1: Yeah, it it was a rebuild of mm-hmm. the Ubuntu ISO. So we downloaded it, extracted it, uh replaced some files, mm-hmm. and then recreated it. And mm-hmm. it wasn't wasn't really Pop OS yet. It was more like a beta release. And then 1804 we were creating it entirely from scratch. Mm-hmm. So very different process. Mm-hmm.
0: So why did you want to do Ubuntu with like a slightly newer kernel, newer drives and things like that? Like, why, why was that the direction you wanted to go?
1: Well, uh, we shipped at the time Ubuntu systems mm-hmm. and we couldn't ship Ubuntu because Ubuntu wouldn't boot on a lot of NVIDIA systems, at least at right. the time. Uh, and Ubuntu would not uh, work with a lot of the newer CPUs we were getting, we would get the hardware uh, within days of it becoming public that the hardware even existed, and then Ubuntu's kernel would not change for the whole release cycle. Mm -hmm. So we would have to, no matter what, inject stuff in. And the way we were doing it before was to install Ubuntu and then install a PPA uh, that contained a driver pack that updated some things like Mesa, the Linux kernel, and and other related things. Mm-hmm.
0: Right, I'd never really consider that from the perspective of a system integrator. Cause, you know, most of the time you're gonna be able to get Linux running pretty early, but when we're talking about a distro like a, a Ubuntu, usually like Intel will put out like a big wiki page, be like, this is how you, this like this is what you need to do, these are the extra packages you need to install. Huh. Now that actually makes a lot of sense then. So that sort of that sort of was the origin of of PopWest, and then from there, like, did you ever expect PopWest to sort of grow into what it is today, or sort of was it just intended to be that sort of we're making this to make the system integration a lot easier?
1: It, it started with uh, we want to have something where a user can download the installation media. Mm-hmm and it will boot on all of our computers. Right, right. And that was it. And the answer was, we have to update it more regularly. Uh, and Ubuntu does a lot of wonderful things, and they're very good at supporting hardware. But the cycle up, the update cycle for their ISOs is, is too slow to support new hardware. So <laughs> if you want to support the new hardware, you get the Ubuntu ISO, you add something like no mode set to the kernel command line, and then you boot it. And then you update it, and then you install the NVIDIA driver, and then you reboot, and you remove no mode set from the command line, and then finally you have a good working system. Mm-hmm. And this was—that's uh, also basically what we have to do with our Ubuntu installs still, but we've streamlined the process because our installer can can install like our PPA along with Ubuntu for all of our Ubuntu installs. And then for, for all of our POP installs, it's all out of the box. Everything works. Mm-hmm. And so this was really a, how do we make the the uh, reinstall process so simple that any any uh, system integrator could take POP OS and install it on their hardware? And that also led to some things like the HP Dev 1, where, where they could take POP OS and modify it the way they wanted to. And then... Every Pop!OS ISO installs on that piece of hardware the way that that uh, that, that team wanted it to. Mm-hmm. So uh, we've integrated all those things in, whereas if you have something like Windows, Ubuntu, Fedora, I mean, those are like, it's a generic image, and it may be missing some things for a particular piece of hardware. So uh, Pop!OS was to integrate things that were required for our hardware, but it turns out that our hardware is so heterogeneous that there are so many different pieces to it. Like we have laptops that have AMD CPUs, Intel CPUs. We have laptops with NVIDIA GPUs. We sell desktops with AMD, Intel and NVIDIA CPUs and GPUs. It's a very wide spectrum. And Mm -hmm. on the desktop side, we have different motherboard manufacturers we work with. And so with this wide spectrum of hardware, and us coming in and saying we're making a distribution that works on brand new hardware that seemed to bring in a lot of people who who are interested in in uh, buying new hardware.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And even if they weren't buying it from us. So um, that, that's a, a market that especially is is uh, tended towards gamers where they're upgrading their hardware and they need to know if I if I buy a, a new NVIDIA GPU, is it going to work? Or am I going to buy it? put it in? The system doesn't even boot. I have to take it out and wait wait a few months for mm-hmm. for something to be released. We're selling that as soon as we can, so popOS has to support it mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. right like the way I'd recommend uh, like upgrading systems for a normal person is just don't buy the new stuff, just don't do that. Obviously, like right. you guys are selling it, but like if you're upgrading your own system, I always wait. Like, I, my current card's a generation behind because I just don't want to deal with those early adoption issues. Even though Arch is going to have those fixes pretty quickly, there's going to be issues along the way. Get, the drivers might be a bit buggy, and I just personally don't want to deal with that. But yeah. if you're going to be selling hardware, like, you need to make sure that process is going to be as smooth as possible, especially for those, those people who, who do want to buy, like, the latest system that is available.
1: Yeah. It's, it's important that somebody does it. Yeah. I, I think if you're going to go out and buy an old laptop and, and put any distribution on it, it will work just fine.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the, the release cycles of other distributions are tended towards the stability of new, of, of older hardware. And that, I think it's great that, that users have both options. Mm-hmm. And that's uh so if you go out and buy a, a brand new piece of hardware, you know, there's a distribution that's, that's, tending towards that. And if you don't, you have more options of different distributions that are not trying to do that. Mm -hmm. And um, (laughs) there's a lot of flexibility. If you're not trying to do that, you don't have to go with the latest Linux kernel. Mm -hmm. And there are regressions in the Linux kernel that happen all the time. So sometimes we've had to make calls where we're like, well, this, this new kernel is absolutely required for the new for the new uh, AMD GPU. What do we do if it has a regression on an older GPU and then we have to make a decision? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm hoping that the fact that someone is actually in this space makes that less of a likely occurrence. Uh, The fact that someone is tracking every new kernel release, and we do track every kernel release even if we don't release every Mm -hmm. new kernel release. Uh we don't release the ones that don't pass testing. Right, right, right. And so the the that means there are eyeballs on how is Linux working on brand new hardware. Mm-hmm. And we submit bug reports upstream as necessary and we submit fixes. And we have regularly interacted with hardware companies as well to tell them when things are broken. So it's uh it's been a beneficial space for someone to be in and um I'm happy that we were able to create a distribution with this model of of trying to support uh, the new hardware.
0: So what you're saying is even if it's not directly uh, released in uh, Pop! OS, we can thank System76 for making sure hardware works.
1: In some way. I mean, uh, <laughs> mostly you can thank and you can curse the hardware vendors themselves. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. When Nvidia, an NVIDIA GPU has a problem, it's an NVIDIA problem. And uh, not a Linux problem, not a Pop OS or Ubuntu problem or, or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as the distribution is doing what it should be doing to keep updated, uh, then, then I think uh, generally we should blame the hardware vendors and hope that they see our market as important.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's why System76 is important because... Uh, We sell directly from those hardware vendors and have direct communications with them where we will bother them if these things are not working and they will lose money if they do not get them working. So Mm -hmm. we have multiple times, especially with with NVIDIA and with AMD had to say, hey, this this new hardware is broken. I have to give Intel props. They seem like they actually test (laughs) their stuff uh, regularly, but we've also had issues where we've had to say like, Hey, Raptor Lake CPUs aren't aren't operating correctly on the new kernel. Mm-hmm. Uh, will you check it out? And that uh, that has led to updates that that go through the entire ecosystem. So, um, without somebody trying to actually sell hardware running Linux, um, there's no interest from Intel, AMD, NVIDIA on on making sure it runs.
0: Mm-hmm. Wait, what am I hearing
1: now? Oh, it's the mower again. It's on this side of the house now. <laughs> it's a lot quieter though. So, I was in the basement before, and the fence is right there, and then they right, were on right. the other side. So
0: okay.
1: now I'm on the top floor. So,
0: well, let's hope they don't have that much grass though. <laughs> <laughs> they,
1: they, gotta be finished soon. All right. Surely. I think they'll be done in a couple seconds.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, okay. So. With uh, with PopOS, so PopOS is a downstream of Ubuntu. At mm-hmm. what point did the Pop Shell come along?
1: Pop Shell we created for 2004, and the purpose of that was uh, a lot of us had not been using GNOME for a while at that point. Mm-hmm. I had switched to i3. I know Very some nice. other people had switched to different tiling window managers. And, and the question was, well, if our engineers aren't using what we're, what we're shipping as the default, mm-hmm. what can we do to make it interesting? And uh, the answer ended up being tiling, for, for at least for our engineering team. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: it was very important that the tiling would be automatic. Uh, that um, I've seen some other designs where you create windows and you choose where they go, kind of like the Windows 11 design uh the windows 11 now basically the only feature they introduced beyond what windows 10 had which they could have just introduced to windows 10 so i don't really know what the point was but anyways uh the only the only company i feel News comfortable to flame regularly is is <laughs> microsoft um everyone else is okay but uh yeah they they released windows 10 and everyone had to pay for it and update and you don't get to use hybrid cpus like alder lake properly because of somehow the new scheduler or something wouldn't go back to Windows 10. I have no idea how that stuff works. Like why couldn't they just release an update to Windows 10 that makes the new scheduler work. But anyway, they have a little selection utility to select where Windows go. Mm-hmm. And that's what I would call manual tiling. You select a window and you choose how to tile all the windows together. Right, right. Uh, automatic tiling in pop OS is what I would is a little different. You create a window, it positions it automatically. Mm-hmm. And uh, it positions it based on what window you have focused right now. And it, it uh, tries to preserve a, a aspect ratio. So if you create a new window and you have a very wide window that you have focused, then it will split in half vertically. Mm-hmm. And if you have a very, a very skinny window, it will split in half horizontally. So um, that automatic tiling was something that i3 did not have. <laughs> uh,
0: no, without
1: some extensions there is an i3 auto tiling uh script that i use that works really well Wait, is it the, uh, is
0: it the one just called like i like auto tiling or something
1: i3 auto tiling yeah i use the I same thing link for my dot files and I've, I've set up basically every desktop environment that i try with the same kind of settings in my dot files mm-hmm. so i have kde and i i think uh, I have a kwin tiling script that does essentially the same thing with all the configuration to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. I just like the way it works, and we're porting the same system over to Cosmic, so mm-hmm. uh, with some improvements, some major improvements, like the ability to tile things in, in three-wide or four-wide, uh, whereas before, uh, the pop-shell sh- pop script would always divide things in half.
0: Right, right. So you're sort of just giving the user more options in the way they want to lay out their windows,
1: right? And and a lot more tight integration into the system. Mm-hmm. A big reason behind mm-hmm. Cosmic is that uh, we, we we just grow tired of writing JavaScript that runs inside of a single environment. Oh, wait, wait, it's hold, hold on to a second. Is
0: is that is that what Gnome plugins are written in?
1: Yes. Oh, Pop Shell is written in TypeScript and transpiled to JavaScript. Right. And then the JavaScript gets inserted into the runtime of Gnome Shell. So Uh Gnome Shell plugins are all hot loaded into the same process space, all running one JavaScript unit, no multi-threading or anything. Every extension is running in one JavaScript context. Wait, so
0: if one of the plugins were to crash, would that take everything down? Yes. Okay. And it
1: happens. It happens.
0: Right. Okay.
1: So uh, yeah, it happens a lot. (laughs) I'll have to say. And that that's a major reason behind the designs of cosmic, which are to attempt to modularize this so extensions can be added as separate processes.
0: Imagine that
1: Yeah, which is I mean it's something that's been going away because even KDE is doing a similar thing mm-hmm. where they're injecting scripts directly into the same process. and and often it's the same process that's the compositor either the wayland compositor or the x11 server Uh so it goes down everything goes away so you you download your your uh make my desktop pretty script or extension Mm -hmm. install it and it crashes everything disappears and every process dies and you have to restart the compositor it's it's a I don't want to flame them because I understand the, me- the reason behind it and, and uh, the rationale behind it. It is a simple mechanism to understand. It is relatively easy to write extensions, mm-hmm. but because of there's no separation between extensions, it's also relatively easy for extensions to have bugs that can affect the rest of the shell. Mm-hmm. And so there, there, are, there are pros and cons to this design. And a more modular system is more difficult to write each individual extension, and more difficult to design an API that they interact through. But we will have each extension running its own process space. Mm-hmm. So if it crashes, it's not going to bring down the whole shell. It can be restarted. None of the windows go away. Mm-hmm.
0: That's a much yeah. No, that that's a yeah. That's a much more sensible design. Like if, if I. Because, like, okay, a lot of the plugins are going to be made by some... You know, it's going to be made by, what, like, one guy, probably. And it's going to probably not have a test suite. It's probably going to be, like, you know, written well enough that it doesn't crash most of the time.
1: On one version of Gnome Shell.
0: On one right? version of Gnome yeah. Shell.
1: And yep. then once they update... The way that they update, of course, is to change the JavaScript inside Gnome Shell itself because the majority of Gnome Shell is inside that JavaScript context, right? So they are making modifications to the to the internals of GNOME Shell's JavaScript context. Uh-huh. The things that run inside that context have to adapt to the new context to the to the new code, because if you want to, for example, put an indicator in the top panel in GNOME Shell, mm-hmm. the only way to do that is to modify the JavaScript object that is the panel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if they change the way the panel is is named or any element of it changes, you may have to rewrite that extension. Mm-hmm. And so there are some very creative ways that we have had to adapt to new, new GNOME Shell updates, because they don't change the internals based on the way extensions work.
2: Mm-hmm. They
1: change the internals based on what their goals are, and then the extensions have to adapt. Right. And that model has has uh eaten up like it became to it came to the point where porting all of our extensions took up the majority of the six month release cycle
0: right and then we're porting them and then you know testing them as well making sure they're actually stable
1: yeah exactly right
0: so where did at what point did cosmic become an idea? Because the name cosmic, I know you guys have been using since before the like the new Rust cosmic thing. So, when did you guys start referring to the Pop West thing as cosmic?
1: Well, when GNOME 40 came around, we mm-hmm. wanted to preserve some elements of GNOME 3.38, uh, particularly the ability to have vertical workspaces and uh, this. this created a design uh that we needed to name and that name was cosmic Mm -hmm. and over time that design has eaten up a lot more things and led to the development of a new desktop environment but for the very first release uh it was just to to change a few of the elements of gnome shell to more more to better mimic what we wanted to do now we've expanded so we'll have both horizontal and vertical workspaces selectable per monitor Mm -hmm. Uh, and then we will have uh, a lot of other configure configuration options but the uh the primary change in gnome 40 that led to to the creation of the cosmic gnome shell extension uh to try and preserve the 3.38 design was the switch of the workspaces and the the view too where um it zooms out all of the workspaces at the same time. So uh, yeah, it, it was uh, mainly our, our start at uh, creating a desktop environment through any means possible. Mm-hmm. And Cosmic was the name given to that. And the first version of it was just to continue down this path of trying to modify Gnome Shell to do what we wanted to do. Right. And then Libidweda came out. Or at least information about it came out and I'm not going to talk about it because, uh, it's been talked to death, but the issue simply was we did not want to adapt to, um, to their concepts about theming right? and they did not want to adapt to ours. And this led to the natural conclusion that they should be free to go and do what they want to do. And we should be free to go and do what we want to do. And that involved us choosing a different toolkit. Uh, And at that point, we started investigating and we've been deep into Rust for all of our other projects. Uh, Every new piece we add to pop OS, if possible, is usually written in Rust. So we had an installer backend called distanced that was written for 1804. It was written in Rust. We have an upgrade daemon, pop upgrade. It was written in Rust. Uh, we have some, some uh, other elements of the system written in Rust. So we wanted to see, okay, what can we do with Rust mm-hmm. uh, in the UI space? And this led us to evaluate a ton of different toolkits. And at the time, we settled on Iced. We settled on particularly making a a layer on top of iced that would come with uh some some simplifications uh for creating cosmic applications so we Mm -hmm. have a lib cosmic that integrates directly with iced and is completely optional Mm -hmm. but it provides uh automatic loading of of the themes that a user can create which are quite extensive and customizable Mm -hmm. uh, as well as uh integrated ux ideas so we have widgets there that are created by our ux team that are then placed into libcosmic and then we use that to create the elements of cosmic and again all those elements are separated into modular pieces so you have cosmic comp that actually is the compositor the wayland compositor and uh the only piece we, we haven't really figured out how to modularize yet is tiling Mm-hmm. And this is another thing that I've told to everyone who's who's asked, like, can you collaborate on tiling? And the answer is, it really should live inside the compositor. We mm-hmm. found so many problems with Pop Shell that would be solved if we could just modify Mutter. Um, but modifying Mutter was not on the table. So, uh, what do you mean
0: with, with collaborate with tiling? What are Not sure what you're getting at with that.
1: Yeah, we've been told. Well, why don't you just work on GNOME to bring in this idea right. into okay. GNOME Shell? And there's a lot of different ideas floating around. And technically, there's no technical reason it couldn't be done. Mm-hmm. Um, but from a, a uh, pragmatic perspective, to, to integrate everything in to a, a already existing compositor and have all the people who use it be happy with that is much more difficult. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm glad that they're going off and going to try to integrate tiling in. I don't know what that will look like. It probably won't look like Pop Shell, but mm-hmm. it may be a good base. I There's
0: don't know, still a uh, lot
1: of reasons why we need to go down our own route.
0: I don't know if you'd seen anything of the talk that was happening. Um, the no. Okay, okay. So it's not tiling exactly in the same way that you'd want it to be for for Pop OS. So like Tobias talked about, like the idea of just do- <clears throat> just doing like making windows be tiles like that's not exactly what they're going for they s- sort of acknowledge that right. some applications don't play nicely with having their aspect ratio changed and it's more like sort of i guess it's it's sort of putting a grid of windows to get uh, together but not necessarily making use of the entire desktop if that makes any sense uh, i'll send you the, the talk afterwards if you want to have a look um okay but i don't th- oh right now it's still a mock-up Um, so I don't know how like customizable that tiling would be if you guys wanted to work with it anyway, like whether you're going to be able to write plugins that are going to be able to (laughs) interface with that, or it's going to be exactly the way they want it to be.
1: At this point, we've already completed the tiling implementation Mm -hmm. in Cosmic Comp. Right. Yeah. And it's rust and it's great and it's fresh and it's modular modularized and we don't ever want to go back. Mm -hmm. It's just how it is. Um, and I, I tried and they took my attempts at trying as an offense. And now I don't want to talk about it anymore about, uh, Gnome. And I, I've had a wonderful history with using, using Gnome, but, mm. uh, I, I'd like to alternate Gnome and Gnome cause I'm still not sure which one to say, uh, <laughs> Please do. It's that going history to annoy is at lot. an end. I'm, I'm now, uh, a cosmic man. So. Mm. Yeah, there's cosmic comp. The compositor is at the center of the whole thing, and mm-hmm. the modular design means that the panel is a different process. Mm-hmm. Not just the panel, but every applet inside of the panel is created by a different process. So even the like the network applet, if it crashes for some reason, which it probably won't because it's written in Rust. But mm-hmm. I mean, I don't I don't want to say Rust is a, a silver bullet for every single problem. Uh, it kind of is, but. <laughs> it's as Definitely close to one biased. as we can produce. Uh, but uh, yeah, if it crashes, which mm-hmm. it could, uh, it won't bring down the whole panel. Right. The panel will just reinstatiate re-inst- it. Mm-hmm. And if the panel crashes for whatever reason, then the panel will be reinstantiated. It will be re by Cosmic Session, which is a session handler. And basically it says, well, I need to run Cosmic Comp and I need to run Cosmic Panel. And if either of them crash, I'm going to restart them. (laughs) Now, if Cosmic Session crashes, then my belief that your computer has not been compromised is very low. (laughs) I believe it has been compromised. Like, it's a very simple uh, program. It only spawns two things. And if either of them crash, it respawns them. (laughs) Uh, That design is so that we have a single... Uh, We do have a single point of failure, Cosmic Session, but Mm -hmm. something has to be a single point of failure. And so we make that thing be as minimal as possible. And then the things that that are not single points of failure, like the applets, we spawn those in different processes so they can't kill each other. And uh, if one of them does die, we can recreate it. And
0: uh, Sorry, I was going to ask you, at this stage, how big do you reckon Cosmic Session is?
1: Cosmic Session... In terms of in terms of what lines like, of code? Yeah, or... we'll go
0: with lines of code. That's the easiest thing to go with. I
1: mean, it would probably be. There is one thing that's in there that's a little uh, strange, which mm. is that notifications, because notifications in in the free desktop specification have to be handled by a D-Bus uh, server, and there right. has to be only one of them. The uh, basically a socket is created by Cosmic Session and then handed off to Cosmic Panel. Right. and also to uh, a, a separate server, the Cosmic Notifications server. So it's probably about 200 lines of code, and the majority of that is for creating that socket and sharing it. And then the socket on the Cosmic Notifications side, uh, that server creates the Dbus uh, interface, which mm-hmm. has to there has to be only one of them. But then the panel can communicate over the socket, so there can be multiple consumers of the notification data. Right. So it's multiplexing the notification data. So it mm-hmm. comes in through Dbus and then it goes out to each panel instance of the notification widget uh, or, or applet. Mm-hmm. So that way each applet can, can read the notifications. And by having permissions defined, we can prevent any other applets from reading notifi- notifications. So each applet can be sandboxed and this concept is primarily important because we want to have uh, third-party applets be available. So it, they're going to be sandboxed such that they have permissions like it can read the screen or, or it can it can communicate with audio devices, uh, like changing the volume, or it can read notifications, mm-hmm. things like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Um, <clears throat> well, there's a couple of things I, I want to unpack throughout that. I was gonna ask, but you pretty much answered it anyway. Uh, I'm sure people have asked you why make your whole own separate thing and not just fork off of off, off of Gnome, but I think that's pretty be made pretty clear throughout some of the stuff you've said. But I do want to go back to the whole using Rust. Like, why was it Rust that that it, the language? Uh, why is Rust the language that you guys were drawn to? What is the value in this language? And you know, just go with that, I guess.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, if we're starting uh, from scratch for, for any project, mm-hmm. uh, we don't really have anything to bind us to any other programming language. And in that kind of free field, it's very hard to rule out Rust as the, the language to start with. Okay. It is statically typed, which is important for preventing errors that happen all the time in dynamic programming. We love it's duct the reason why duck typing is great, yeah, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's the reason why PopShell is using TypeScript so that we can add a layer of static typing on top of a dynamic language mm-hmm. because it just means if you pass the wrong object the compiler complains. You don't have the whole system crash, you know, 3 3 weeks after the user boots into a session because something was wrong yep. in yep. one specific tiny little use case. Uh, because of a mistake, which happens all the time in Python and JavaScript, where oops, at that one point in that one, you know, rare case, I pass something and value error. You know, where would that come from? Let me just wrap the whole thing in try catch and mm-hmm. and hopefully everything's fine, uh, <laughs> right?
0: Try catch solves everything.
1: <laughs> try catch the whole entire.
0: Yep. Yep. piece yep, of code yep. main function we just nest the try catches
1: <laughs> down like yeah, exactly every function has a try catch it's yep. uh yep. so yeah well that's it, it, it's easy to write dynamic program uh, dynamically typed programs because you don't have to worry about the types matching mm-hmm. but when type <clears> matching <throat> is required you run into cases where In JavaScript, you have things interpret themselves as true or false in a completely unpredictable way, you would think. And you have to, like, learn the entire ethos of the creator of JavaScript to figure out why square brackets are true and and curly brackets are false. And it's like, uh, I don't want to make fun of JavaScript, but I I feel like out of all the programming languages I could make fun of, that's probably the main one. Just My- because so many things in it don't make any sense to me. <laughs> so, yeah, static typing was important. And then you then you have to rule out, well, why not do it in C? Why not do it in C++? Mm-hmm. And so another thing about Rust is it, it's not really just like <sighs> about memory safety. Memory safety comes out of the borrow checking system. Mm-hmm. And the borrow checking system is kind of an extension of static typing where now the typing system is also evaluating, have you mutably aliased an object when you shouldn't have? Mm-hmm. And uh, this extension, this, this borrow checker, uh, r- just rules out a ton of other bugs. And another thing is the non-existence of null. Null doesn't exist in Rust oh, okay. uh, at all. You have to use the option type, which is a, a strong type. It either has a variant sum or a variant none. You can also use a result type, which has a variant ok and a variant error. Mm -hmm. And and you have to match the variant. You have to handle both cases. You can't just have a function that takes a pointer, and the pointer could be null or could not, and then the programmer could forget to check for null. Every function that takes a, a, a pointer to something is usually done through a borrow, and the borrow is statically checked by the compiler to always be a valid pointer. And if you don't want it to be a valid pointer, you wrap wrap it in an option type, which then the programmer has to actually unwrap that option type. They have to handle both cases. In C and C++, often the mechanism by which you pass errors back is to return negative one. Well, what if negative one needs to be a real thing? How does the user of the function know by just looking at the function if the error type is 0, negative 1, 100? They don't know. They just know it returns int. What does int mean? Mm -hmm. And in C++, pointers are are used all over the place, and it's very easy to, to pass in pointers when they're already being used. For example, iterating over an array while you're removing elements from the array. In Rust, you are not allowed to do this Unless you do it the correct way, mm-hmm. in C it is very easy to get seg faults because you've removed an element at the same time that you're iterating an array.
0: Yep, yep.
1: So these are all all things that a stronger type system prevents. So mm-hmm. I'm 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 very into types, and I would have gotten into Haskell if I had a PhD in applied <laughs> mathematics, but I don't, so I'm not into Haskell. Uh, so I got into Rust, which is like the next best
0: thing. Mm-hmm. As you were going through those, uh, those examples, I was thinking back to my software engineering classes and I was, I was thinking back on every single time I did exactly yeah. what you were saying.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's not... So, and, and the apologists will say, well, you just have to get better. Yeah.
3: You just have better. to get better. And
1: I, I, I don't think that's an answer because people don't... There is a limit to to the ability to understand a system and when you drop somebody into the linux kernel and it has you know six million lines of code or whatever it is at now you can't expect them to to understand every other part that they're interacting with
0: Well, it's, it's and not... all
1: those parts have to work for the whole system to not have bugs
0: it's not just that like if you can get the computer to do that checking for you like why would you bother doing it yourself like go just you know go wash your clothes by hand why would you use a washing machine like no pointing that like you can just do it manually
1: oh well washing machines don't you know that they have the 5g signals that (laughs) communicate with your covid implant and blah 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 there are some really crazy people out
0: there you were joking about the 5g thing but i guarantee there are actually washing machines that are like
1: there have but, to be washing machines with 5G. Yeah, there I are so many sure. smart... Why does anybody need a smart washing machine? <laughs> I, don't I don't know, know. but they're, they are there. They exist. A smart refrigerator.
0: Yep. Why? So it
1: can fail. So it can just...
0: So it can play Doom.
1: There's a software bug and then all your food rots because the software bug turned off the refrigerator. It's the same reason why cars may have a ton of of things going through the entertainment system Mm -hmm. but usually they try to segment out a few of the critical things like do the brakes work through the entertainment system i don't think so i don't think so maybe on a tesla i was gonna
0: say maybe on a tesla
1: (laughs) (laughs) but probably not on most cars
0: uh we got a little side check there uh we're talking about rust um right on the topic of rust so you guys are going with the Iced toolkit. I don't know anything about Rust GUI toolkits, but what were the other options at the time you guys were considering? It is
1: a very nascent field, and there is a lot of interest in, in uh, creating things that actually work. <laughs> that's and that's when good. I got into it, there was absolutely no text rendering being done in Rust. It was all, it was all wrapping other libraries mm-hmm. at best. And at worst, it was basically rendering text without any handling of complex uh, text items like shaping uh, or like anti-aliasing or things like that. And so ICE was doing it that way. Mm -hmm. But so was everyone else. Uh, Accessibility is something that we're still working on building into LibCosmic so it's it was really hard to come in and evaluate any of these because so many things would have to be done in-house for it to be finished uh the first evaluation was do we want to use a pre-existing toolkit not written in rust like gtk cute do we want to use one of those and uh, we eventually decided not to and it was a very tough decision on the gtk front it was primarily due to the attitudes of the GTK developers towards how we were doing theming on Pop!OS. Mm-hmm. And although technically it's probably still possible to theme libadwaita and to theme GTK4, mm-hmm. they have made it tougher on purpose, and that does not give us confidence in the future mm-hmm. of, of the platform. For Qt, our, our main issue with Qt was our our difficulty to integrate it with Rust because we still wanted to write the business level code that controls the UI, mm-hmm. the, the GUI in, uh, in Rust. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to integrate that as tightly as possible. And GTK RS is really good. It, it was easy to use the GTK wrappers for for Rust, mm-hmm. um, but we just didn't trust the platform. And, and for Qt, it was difficult to use the wrappers for Rust. So that led us to the thing. Well, if if we'd have to work on either of these either way, either we'd have to trust, we'd have to bring ourselves to trust GTK to to continue working for us. Mm-hmm. And our use case is definitely strange because we will be loading custom custom theming into the application based on the the uh, the users config files, mm-hmm. and that was that was something that we weren't sure was going to last in GTK uh and then um yeah on the cute side we we would have to do work to improve their bindings for rust let's look at the work we have to do for the rust toolkits so that led us to uh several different toolkits iced and slint being the major ones and i Mm -hmm. still recommend everyone to take a look at slint okay i think for a lot of applications slint is a better choice iced integrates directly into rust slint has a a layout uh, language. Mm-hmm. And I think depending on your preferences, one is going to be easier than the other. And for for us, we decided to go with Iced. Uh, at the time, it seemed to be a more flexible option, but mm-hmm. Slint has done a lot of work recently to improve. So now it's kind of, if I was going to recommend a toolkit, it would be either Iced or Slint. And we had to flip a coin and decide to go with one. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we we went with Iced and and, did you guys uh, do any like had...
0: prototyping early on, just to mess oh, around yeah. with the languages?
1: We did prototyping. Oh, we did prototyping in GTK uh, and and we did prototyping in Iced and in Slint and and the the uh, ability to wrap Iced in another library was particularly impressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the way that it exposes things and it's composable at, at a code level.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I I think it makes it a little more difficult to use at a higher level. Uh, for someone who wants to draw up a, a design in a design editor something like glade or or Qt creator or cute cute creator uh, which I've used cute creator a lot I used to do a ton of C++ stuff uh, so so anybody from the C++ world who's mad about the stuff I say just realize I used to not understand just like you but now I know the glory of rust uh, <laughs> So, yeah, I, I, I'm aware of those. And I think Slint, they provide like a website editor mm-hmm. uh, to mock things up. And and uh, they they did some work to integrate our cosmic theme. And that was recently something they published. And it looks really great. Uh, wrapping it into, into Rust and creating custom widgets the way we wanted to do. And it just iced with something that appealed to, to us. Mm-hmm. It also follows an Elm-like structure, uh, which a number of people on my team were interested in. Uh, we had been experimenting with Realm 4, which is a wrapper for GTK 4 that, ex- that has a Elm-like structure as well. Mm-hmm. And Iced was a little cleaner in terms of following this model because it, it was able to, to separate things out that using GTK would be difficult to separate.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, at the end we had a lot of work to put into Iced. Uh, for example, I had to spend about a month just re-implementing like all of the pieces of shit about text layout that that nobody thinks about, but have to work before you have a working toolkit. Mm-hmm. And so that became Cosmic Text, and now Cosmic Text is integrated into Iced. Mm-hmm. And Slint is planning integration of cosmic text as well. Okay, well. So that was something created by System76. The the first pure Rust shaping and rendering solution. It integrates some other libraries that were very important. Uh there is there is a Rust port of uh I forget the shaping library's name now. Uh, I can I can find it very quickly. I'll just go to the Cosmic Text GitHub page. Easy, because <clears throat> I don't want to throw out that we did everything. It was an integration of multiple different efforts. Mm-hmm. Uh, it did require a lot of System Seventy Six work to get to get everything working. Uh... Shaping. Who does shaping?
0: Shaping is provided by Rusty Buzz.
1: It is Rusty Buzz. Yes.
0: Rendering is provided by Swash
1: right and rusty buzz is itself a rust port of Harf buzz which is the ah. name i was looking for um and that uh, that solution basically swash swash was able to render everything rusty buzz was able to shape everything but combining the two and actually doing layout is an incredibly complicated task that no one had really attempted yet mm-hmm. in rust and so a lot of rust libraries were either not handling international text correctly, or they were um, they were wrapping very large C libraries to do the same thing.
2: Right, right.
1: And you can use GTK and just do that, and GTK RS, but then the majority of your code is actually C, and you're using Pango and Cairo and HarfBuzz and FreeType and those C libraries to, to uh, handle shaping and layout. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and font fallback is another thing that people usually don't think about but is something completely integrated into cosmic text and not from an external library so you have to scan the system for all fonts and you have to have a list of fonts that are preferred for each like a script right like if you have hindu script you need to have a set of fonts for every operating system that are preferred and you need to find which font has the right character and you need to do this for every single character so it ends up adding up quite a lot and being a very difficult performance problem. So caching the results of that and ensuring that that every single group of characters that could be ligatured together, got the right font uh, is a lot of the parts of cosmic text. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so in the end, we were able to add international text handling to iced slint is going to going to have it as well using cosmic text accessibility is something we're working on. And those are things we had to take on because we wanted to do a Rust toolkit. It was a very nascent field, as I said. Still is, in many ways.
0: So whilst your goal is improving ICE feed, like the, the use of Cosmic, it is having a, a wider effect on the general Rust GUI space.
1: Yeah, Cosmic text is, is now being evaluated by a ton of different toolkits if it's not already being used by them so not just iced and slint but also bevy the mm-hmm. game engine is looking at integrating cosmic text i think egui if i remember correctly there's like two choices if you're making a toolkit you either wrap another toolkit mm-hmm. or you have to do text layout in the language that you're in and uh and different uh, rust solutions do it different ways so iced was interesting to me because it wasn't wrapping any other toolkit mm-hmm. It was handling uh, the rendering all inside of Rust. So it was using WGPU and going directly to um, to the GPU for mm-hmm. every operating system. Uh, and And I uh, helped to, to uh, fix up this uh, crate called SoftBuffer mm-hmm. so that uh, ICE could provide software rendering on every single major operating system, including Redox. So now Iced works uh, completely 100% on Redox, and so does Slint, because uh, there's a Slint team member who, who is basically tasked with ensuring that uh, Slint is working with, with a whole bunch of different operating systems, and Redox is one of them. And providing the cosmic theme for Slint is also one of them. So we'd be probably, if I eh, I mean, I don't want to throw this out there and and be wrong. I could be wrong, mm-hmm. but we might be the first... Uh, desktop environment where you have multiple toolkits that implement the the UX style of that desktop environment.
0: Mm.
3: Uh
1: So I can't
0: think of another one. Yeah? Yeah, and no I I was saying will send I can't think of another one.
1: You have KDE and you have Cute. You have GTK and Gnome. Yeah. You have uh you have XFCE and and GTK. GTK GTK three, it's a, GTK3, <laughs> right. which I mean I, I prefer in some ways. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's a it's usually a one to one ratio, and now we're talking about multiple different different ones, and they're all going to load the cosmic theme. And the the concept is that we want to have uh, a a overall set of of GUI libraries that any Rust GUI developer can use. Mm -hmm. And they can be assured that the whole entire stack is Rust. So all the way from from their code, down through the toolkit, down through the rendering libraries, to finally the, the interface with the operating system. And that's where it cuts off. Unless they're on Redux, then it keeps going all the way.
0: So whilst we're getting this consistency within major Rust libraries, one concern I have seen people have is... Well, what's going to happen if I want to run a, you know, a Qt application? Like, you know, a lot of people are probably going to have something like Caden Live installed. How yeah, Are you guys going to be handling any sort of, tr- or tr- at least trying to handle some sort of consistent theming there as well, or what's what's going to be the go ahead there?
1: There, there is a desire to, mm-hmm. and uh, the the thing is, Pop OS when it releases with with the Rust desktop environment. It, it, it will be still mostly GTK apps. Okay. It has to be because we're not going to be able to rewrite every single application. Right. And uh, it's just going to include those. And and our process is going to be to to generate themes for GTK and potentially for Qt as well. Mm-hmm. And I hope the KDE team is interested in this because we are interested in how can they port... Their uh, their theme over into the Cosmic's theme configuration, whenever they load up mm-hmm. KDE, the user, so that our apps fit in, right. And when KDE apps are inside of Cosmic, how can we how can we port our configuration into KDE's theme configuration? I mm-hmm. think it's totally possible. Uh, it just is something we will have to work on, and I'm very interested in doing that.
0: Mm. That's, that's no, that is really good because I know that's like. I, You know, a lot of people are really concerned because, you know, the Linux desktop for the longest time has just been Qt, or Qt, whatever you want to call it, and GTK. So bringing a third player, or I guess a fourth if you're going to include Slint as well, bringing an extra player into this space, it has a lot of people worried about how it's going to integrate and what's... Because I, I don't personally care about consistent theming. Like, anyone who's seen my desktop, it's a disaster. But I know a lot of people out there really do care about it. So it is good to know that you guys do have at least that in mind, whether it's going to be doable, like, on a wide scale and whatever is going to be doable with the GTK side. It's good to know that you guys at least have that, like, in your mind is something you do want to work on.
1: Yeah, it's, it's something I... I don't see it as, as a requirement. Absolutely, because right. already the Linux app ecosystem is it, it contains so many different applications with different styles and There's different. Just an in there; it's a mess. Yeah, yeah. It's um, the likelihood that a user is actually going to have a set of applications that all fit together is very low, and that's not just a Linux problem. That's also a Windows problem it's also an Android problem. That's a problem anywhere where where um, there is so much freedom in the creation of applications that each app developer is going to to generate their own style. And I, I think that's acceptable so long as we are taking whatever steps we can do to make uh, very common applications fit in uh, and, and be styled by the desktop environment. Mm-hmm. So I would hope that the, the a set of similar applications, file manager, terminal would would live in a, in any desktop environment, and would fit in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I am skeptical that it will actually be possible to the level that these users seem to want it to be. Uh, again, there are lots of different applications with lots of different design like uh, concepts and. Mm-hmm. There is no way you're going to make all of them fit together. Right. right. Uh, but to the extent where we can, I would like to be able to port themes from, from KDE into Cosmic and vice versa. Mm. And there are some attempts to to standardize this at, at a free desktop level as well. It's kind of minimal right now with accent colors being considered. Um we can probably go a little further than that with cute and, and cosmic integration. Um, cause the accent color proposal really just makes the colors of the application match. Mm. It doesn't particularly make the sizes, shapes of things match and, and just the accent color. Mm. Uh, so there, there is still a lot that would be not matching across toolkits. Right. right. I don't think adding more players really changes the landscape that much. It's not really fair to say there's only GTK and Qt. There are so many applications that are using custom toolkits or, or using different toolkits that I, I think it's...
0: I, and, I, and a lot I of them what are I meant pre-installed. there is like the, the major desktops, uh, that's what they're using. Sure.
1: Yeah, and so I, I feel like it's the default set of apps that should be most concerning and then that uh, usually those are bundled with the desktop environment. The if you install Caden Live, you don't really want the interface to change, such that it looks like an, a GNOME application, mm-hmm. uh, because a GNOME application that does video editing will look very different. It will have different UX design decisions. That's fair. Um, but matching at, at the very least, matching dark and light mode mm-hmm. is a guaranteed thing. Matching accent colors is very close to being something that's standardized Mm -hmm. going beyond that is something that has to be done on a per toolkit level like from this toolkit to that toolkit what do we want to synchronize do we want cosmic to output a kde theme file for every kde application that runs inside of cosmic i'm not sure Mm -hmm. Uh, i think it's something we should try but if it ends up being bad i would i would easily go back on that Uh, If it ends up not looking right or not working right Mm -hmm. or being being too much of a hassle,
0: right? No, that's I think it's a good answer. Um, Well, let's let's shift gears a bit. And one thing I didn't want to I've got a couple of things people brought up on uh, when I asked on like Mastodon. Someone wanted to know your take on this like recent wave of immutable distros coming out. Like you got Vanilla OS, you have Blend OS, you have Snaps new like you know Snap Desktop thing. What do you like do you do you think this is an interesting direction for Linux desktop to be going? Do you think there's a place for Pop!_OS here or Pop!_OS is going to I know you guys had your like immutable core thing that happened early or being discussed like earlier in the year. Um but yeah, what 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 do you sort of think about this?
1: I'm very interested in immutable systems, but I still think that the research on them has not been completed. There are so many pitfalls, there are so many ways That you run into walls and the only way to really fix it is to build your own image Mm -hmm. and i feel like uh as a as a user you can you can work your way through those only if you're really experienced with linux Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because the the guides that are out there for modifying linux usually assume you don't have an immutable distribution right right and if that's the case then we are producing something that's supposed to be better for beginners but requires an expert level if you want to go beyond. So there's almost a gap in in the learning abilities, in in the abilities the user has. And how do you jump the gap from I'm a a unexperienced user who's okay with immutable distributions because I have no use case where I would have to do something hard Mm -hmm. to work with them. And I'm a very experienced user that knows how to get past those hurdles Mm -hmm. there is a gap there that i feel like has not been filled yet and i'm happy that there are so many other people willing to explore that and try to figure it out Uh, i i feel like with with most of our customers being business customers and being in in spaces where they customize the os at a low level Mm -hmm. uh, there are very few distributions that are immutable that actually meet their needs NixOS might be the closest thing because it's just so easy to configure changes to NixOS compared to other immutable systems, but that comes at the cost. I think of, of it being difficult to define the packaging Mm -hmm. for, for packages. And you have to learn the Nix language and, and learn a lot of other things before you become proficient enough to create new packages. If the package already exists and all you want to do is configure it, great. But if it doesn't exist, I say this because we did have to recently see how hard would it be for Cosmic to, to be ported to Nix. It was difficult. It was difficult to port. Mm-hmm. Um, so I say it depends on who, who you are. And a lot of people could live inside of an immutable distribution, but there are still gaps. There are gaps with users specifically who want to modify the system level but don't have an easy, well-documented way to do that. Uh, on on Silverblue, you may have to reproduce the image, mm-hmm. which is actually what one of our developers does. So uh, she is the primary developer of Cosmic Comp, Victoria, and mm-hmm. she uses Silverblue often. She produces a brand new image. Uh, not she's not using RPM OS tree to put packages in. She is recreating a brand new image when she wants to update. And this custom image is then put into the OS tree Mm
3: -hmm.
1: as a new commit. And I feel like that's a very difficult thing to do. It works technically, but it's far more difficult than installing Cosmic on a a mutable system. And so there's a gap there that needs to be bridged. How do we bring moderate level uh, users, users who have enough technical ability that they need to do something but not expert level, where they want to go learn how to package things for an immutable distribution, mm-hmm. uh, and and that can only really be bridged by immutable distributions themselves actually trying to uh, to handle these use cases instead of just saying flatpak is enough, right? Or right. snap is enough. It really isn't enough, especially when you consider that flatpak is a CLI is is devoid of any cli like provisions. Mm-hmm. So if someone wants to install a a mysql on on silverblue, they can add it with os tree. How do they configure it? Okay, they have to go through this special silverblue specific mechanism. That means silverblue has to produce documentation specific to silverblue whereas for all the for all the mutable distributions like the arch wiki those guides are usually portable to every single other mutable distribution.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, all I'm saying is it, it it's a very, very good thing for, for producing absolute truth in terms of the operating system image. Mm-hmm. But there are some very difficult gaps with, with specific use cases that are far more difficult to do with current immutable systems. And what I feel like a user would want to do is just be able to run sudo apt install something just straight out of the guide, mm-hmm. uh, that, and, and it just works. And that's, and I, I went down this path with popcore to try and figure out how to make an immutable system on top of, of, um, a Debian based system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did not make enough progress. I feel like there are some very big issues with with the state of packaging in Debian and Ubuntu Mm -hmm. that assume a a mutable system and are very hard to move into an immutable system. Mm -hmm. Namely, the presence of of distribution scripts, of of packaging scripts. Mm -hmm. Those scripts are, are completely Turing complete, right? They can do any command they want at any time. They can try to change, for example, the bootloader. Of the on the disk, which the grub package absolutely does. And so, so if you have a package that does this, then uh, how do you integrate that into an immutable system? Mm-hmm. You have to, t- and what Fedora did for Silverblue is they took all the RPMs that they had and they filtered out the ones that would fit in and they started with that set and converted them so that they could fit into RPM OS tree. Mm-hmm but there's still a wide set of packages that are unavailable with rpm os tree and and that set of packages will be difficult to port over and then there's everything in the copper repo uh, that are third party things that's that's another thing that that uh, irritates me about and another reason why i love ubuntu is and debian is that so many things are in the main repository with Fedora with Arch you have to use third party repositories and the AUR is absolutely a third party repository. Yep. Anybody that says it's part of Arch I no, it's really not. You have mm-hmm. to those are those are somebody else uploaded those scripts. So mm-hmm. Does any of this make sense? No, I, I get exactly a what you're saying. So thing basically
0: there. basically you need firstly good documentation on how to do it. Yeah, absolutely. But also some sort of more some sort of more automated configuration tool for generating these new images. So you you wouldn't have to go through that process of, okay, I need to read this like 10 page wiki on how to build my own image. It's more like, okay, I can run this command. It will just automatically make the new image for me. It just works.
1: And NixOS, for the most part, does exactly that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I feel like the difficulty there is just, I'm not sure. It takes a lot of effort to add new software into NixOS. Right. And they would probably disagree with me on that, but again, I do not have an impl- a PhD in applied mathematics, so I don't understand Haskell, and I don't understand Nix.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, those are the two things I don't understand. But once I once I get my PhD, I'll be able to get into functional programming, and and when I when I get deep into functional programming, I'll be able to understand Nix. Mm-hmm. I did I did package some things for Nix for Cosmic. Uh, and then another member of our team, Ashley, repackaged them or, or, or uh, created flakes for them. And I don't understand flakes, but but the uh, the basic concept is that eventually, at some point, NixOS will support flakes, and then everything will be easier.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I'm waiting for that to happen with with uh, with bated breath. <laughs>
0: uh well another thing i wanted to ask about is someone asked me well you guys get your cosmic thing but a lot of other distros out there they'll provide other official desktops as well like you know i had someone ask me like w- uh, is there any chance at some point that there could be like an official kde version of pop West or an official some other desktop things like that
1: well it's an easy question to answer if you say there if there could be a chance yes mm-hmm. there could be okay. a chance okay how much of a chance depends on how, how well Cosmic hits and if people are still asking the same question mm-hmm. and if they are and they're really interested in, in Cosmic, we've done some changes to our packaging
2: mm-hmm.
1: that should make it easier to add more desktop environments in the future. I don't know if they would be official or unofficial, like community spends, but they would be there and they would be fairly well supported. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Easy enough, yeah. I, I know you guys are very focused on Cosmic right now, so I didn't think there would be like anything you could specifically say on that. But I guess, I guess we should probably at some point talk about your other project you're involved in, because I had one? A, I Redox. I had a surprising number of people ask, like I didn't know there were this many people that were interested in it. I I really did. Oh yeah, of course. No, like it's, course. A, it's a really. I I guess like. I personally haven't done like a ton of research on it myself. So why don't we just start with the basics of what is this project?
1: So, Redox uh, Redux OS is a microkernel and a complete full user space that is written primarily in Rust. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the basics of it. Uh, and the history is that I, I needed a first project to do in Rust and, uh, I didn't know how to write a hello world, but I knew how to write an operating system. So I started there. Um, the first project I wrote in rust was, was I, I took somebody's bootloader sample and I added, I poured it over all the code from my other operating system into it. So it had a, it had a simple GUI. It had like mouse cursor moving around keyboard. But it was basically a unikernel. Everything was inside of the bootloader. Mm-hmm. And then I, I rewrote the whole thing to, to split it up so that, uh, and I decided to go from the absolute insane side of unikernel to the absolute insane side of microkernel. So I split it up so that everything was in separate processes and, uh, and uh, it grew from there.
0: Well, I was going to ask you why you made it, but I guess you, (laughs) I guess.
1: Why is a hard question. Why, why, why does anybody do any programming when we all know that humanity is doomed and probably only has another 60 years before, before we're cooked off the planet, Mm -hmm. either via climate change or nuclear explosions or something else. Uh, But why? Uh, Well, it was fun. I needed to learn rust. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Why not write an operating system in rust? And uh, and I I so my like friend. you say
0: that is just like a, a casual thing. Why not write an operating system in Rust? That's just you know. I mean yeah, some going to. Why don't write a, a tic tac toe program in Rust? Why don't write a calculator in Rust? It's just that's I don't know how the... to do
1: that. How do you even tic tac toe? Game's too complicated. That's <laughs> too complicated.
0: Yeah yeah
1: Okay, sure. <laughs> I feel like the 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 major thing that drew me to it was. That um, at the time, the only thing that was running in like very low level Rust Mm -hmm. was that demo program that I found called Rust Boot. Right. And all it was, was to basically be a bootloader and print some text on the screen. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, well, that's interesting. Uh, I'm doing that in Assembler. Why don't I try this new language that my friend recommended? Who is a haskell friend, fan because he has a phd in mathematics um, and can understand it um and he recommended i look into rust at the time i was very deep into c plus plus and i was trying to figure out what kind of rules would i need to add to c plus to make it operate the way i wanted so i i wrote a specification and a set of scripts called the safe object language. Uh Boy, was I wrong. It wasn't that safe, but it was safer. It should have been the safer object language. And what it was, was basically a set of lints that would run on top of C++ code and say uh, when you did some stupid stuff. And uh, and I was very, very short into this project when he sent uh, the link to Rust, which was still in like alpha stage to me. And I took a look at this project and I'm like, well, wow, Rust sounds like exactly what I wanted to do, but Mm -hmm. done a lot better. It's already done and it's there and it's ready. And so then I started looking around because the only thing I was really having fun with was operating systems at the time. So like, well, where is all the operating system code written in Rust? Oh, nobody's doing it. This irritates me often. It is a very empty space. There are very few people actually interested in low level stuff and they're all employed. Uh, they're not doing it as a hobby usually. So it's like uh, you can find a lot of stuff in the open source world. But when you start to look for for um, operating system stuff, it is just a handful. It is a handful of operating systems and they're all written in C. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was like, okay, this, this presents an opening. What if I try to use this language that supposedly has all these wonderful properties and is in, it was in my opinion, even higher level than C plus Although a lot of people would disagree with me. It felt like it was higher level. Mm-hmm. So I was like, how, like, this is wrong. How can you even use this at such a low level? Uh, it, it, it felt, it just felt wrong to me. It felt like I was cheating. Uh, if i if i were to write all this stuff in rust uh, and not have to do it in assembler line by line and every time i add a single instruction I have to recompile the whole thing and test it because God knows it's it's impossible to make changes to assembler without making mistakes
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh sure enough it was easy and and worked well and I'm like well this will scale I can start to write more things with this and and uh yeah that's that's where it came from i i just went straight from assembler visual basic assembler with some c++ on the side but i hated it rust and then that was that was it i still do a bunch of assembler because you can't really do operating systems without it but mm-hmm. but yeah doing so much in rust and and making it a microkernel and it just scaled very easily i could i could write a driver for for redox and in half a day. Mm -hmm. So I had a a network card that was in one of my old laptops. And this is another thing I love doing with Redox is seeing how old I can get stuff to work. Uh, And it had I had a driver for the RTL 8169. But it had an RTL 8139. So I'm like, okay, I'll write a driver for it. I download the data sheet. In about four hours, the driver was done working, working on the real hardware. uh, And that was it. Uh, it was a new process, new, new, new modular component running in user space, uh, no changes to the kernel required, new piece of hardware is supported, uh, and yeah, it, uh, it, it feels to me like microkernels are, are still the right way to do things, mm-hmm. but nobody has really invested that much time into them outside of research, mm-hmm. and that, that also irritates me. Just the lack of resources at the lower level and the the heavy investment of resources into high-level things. And, and how can we get Rust to run run web server stuff and, and run in inside of Wasm and things like that? And that's got like 99% of the entire Rust community working on it. And I'm over here like, hey, you guys realize we can use this anywhere. It can be at, at low-level stuff too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's been interesting.
0: So, correct me if I'm wrong here on the dates with Wikipedia, but Redox started before the first stable release of Rust. Yes. About a month before the first stable. Jeez, okay. So you've been, like, there from the start, basically.
1: It was a little earlier than that, because the first public commit I have was probably... It was, like, uh, a few weeks after I had started the project. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was somewhere around April twentieth of twenty fifteen. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that, that's exactly four twenty is yeah. a,
1: just a great time to release stuff on four twenty, <laughs> and and it also means that the anniversary is right around April Fool's time too. Mm. So we've had a few April Fools jokes until everyone decided April Fools wasn't cool anymore.
0: Yeah, it's no fun
1: to stop that. I'm the only too one who bad. makes April
0: Fools Linux videos. What do you got, yeah. guys? Join in on the fun.
1: Nobody wants to have fun anymore. No, no fun. They just want to complain.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's uh, okay. So I guess that explains why Orb TK was a thing then.
1: Yeah, Orb TK was was a Rust toolkit, pure Rust.
0: Because there wouldn't have been a a toolkit like when you started.
1: When I yeah, when I started, there was very little. I mm. don't even think Iced was around slint may have been around as 60 fps which it was known as before but i don't even know at at that time i wasn't sure if we could even port other toolkits to redox Mm it was just it was so different of a system and had so few things to fill filled in so i had i had a, a window manager called orbital and i had a a Cl- uh, client library called orb client and all the apps at that time were just rendering directly to a frame buffer and then um, orb tk was to try and wrap that up in a way that was a little easier to interact with
2: mm-hmm.
1: and and we used it for a couple applications but in the end I just uh, I don't know I I think I I filled in enough of the GUI stuff that I kind of didn't get have interest in it anymore mm-hmm. And so, I worked on other parts of the system, especially on driver support, uh, on, on making sure Redox booted up on all hardware, on the file system, things like that, porting to new, new architectures. The first microkernel version was 32-bit x86. And then, it really sucked. And I wiped it all away and rewrote it. And I rewrote it 64-bit x86. Mm-hmm. And then... I got so bored with new computers that I added in 32-bit x86 support to it again. So, it's been a cycle.
0: <laughs> Wait, why did you get rid of the 32-bit in the first place?
1: Well, it was terrible code. So, the kernel had to be rewritten. Fair enough. Fair enough. Especially the memory management. It was just uh, too much, too many problems with the memory management. Right. And then that was fixed, and then it was written for x86-64, and then uh, there was a port for ARM, uh, and then there was a port for 32-bit x86, which is mm-hmm. now my favorite platform to work on because I can work with, with really old stuff that Linux doesn't support at all. Like, you try to, you try to run even the most lightweight Linux distribution on my Pentium 2 mm-hmm. computer, it will absolutely not boot. It won't have enough memory to even load up the installer. And then, and then you try to run Redox and it runs just fine and because it's been optimized to fit on that specific hardware. Um, and it runs the same way on a 128-core Threadripper, thread Threadripper, Threadripper processor with 128 gigs of RAM or whatever. So, yeah, it's uh, scalable. <laughs> I, I really like having that aspect that I can write a piece of code and it will run across so many different pieces of hardware. And now I have Iced programs running on that Pentium 2. It's kind of nuts um, because the whole stack has been integrated correctly where mm-hmm. we have a software rendering fallback and Cosmic Text is there and just it's optimized for memory usage. So it, it uh, fits well on, on, a, on such a low-end system.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I know that you have um, Sunset... Uh, orb tk why did you decide to do that
1: well like i said i was not working on GUI stuff for a really long time Mm -hmm. and there was some work by some other folks to uh to try to uh modify it to to use it basically this company ergo docs hired someone named florian blasius and florian um he he wanted to modify OrbTK to use in their in their company's products.
0: Wait, I'm I'm sorry, Ergodox the key, the, the keyboard company. Oh, or are we still that... talking about another Ergodox?
1: It's a different one.
0: Okay, I was gonna say I was very confused for there.
1: Yeah, it is really confusing. I think it might be spelled differently. It might be Ergodoc or something. I don't I even see. remember. He works at Slint now. Okay. Yeah. So. Uh... What happened was, uh, he he left that company, he worked at Slint, nobody was working on Orbtk. So I'm like, okay, you're working at Slint, we already chose Iced as a toolkit because Orbtk wasn't up to the task. Now Redox is going to target these two toolkits. Mm -hmm. So I uh, made sure SoftBuffer and, and Winit, which are two libraries, and Cosmic Text, were all working on Redox. And by doing that, I was able to um, I was able to ensure that Iced would run on Redox. Mm-hmm. Slint also could reuse the same libraries, and now it's running on Redox. So now we have the opportunity to port Cosmic applications directly to Redox. So I don't have to write applications specific to Redox, and that means I can actually get paid to write applications that would be ported to Redox uh rather than being interested in other things for redox i'm usually interested in low level things because i i feel like we should be bringing in the gui from from a third party source it, it's not a critical aspect to to redox to prove that there can be a rust gui right it's a critical aspect to prove there can be a rust kernel and rust drivers and and the low level parts of rust and uh if we have a rust thing being developed and being being paid for by another another company, why not just bring that in? Mm-hmm. And so now the plan is to try to bring in as many elements of as from cosmic and, uh, written in ice, written in slint. And uh, people are confused about that. And really it, it, the two options are both equally viable. It's whichever one you prefer. Um, yeah. I know there was a question on, on or on Twitter about uh, so for Redox, which one are we supposed to use, Iced or Slint? <laughs> it's like, well, both.
2: Which that's the is. that's the nature
1: of, ha- of finally having enough toolkits. Mm-hmm. Uh, y- you're not you're not tied to one, and hopefully Redox will have much more toolkits to work with in the future.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's shift gears to the microkernel design because I you've talked. I guess you sort of were talking about this in another sense with when you're talking about GNOME. With GNOME's effect, obviously it's not a kernel, but it's that same monolithic design where all of the plugins are running as that single process and if something goes down, it all goes down. Linux is the same way, where you have your drivers in the kernel, the driver crashes, goodbye Linux. So why is it that you feel this way about the microkernel design. Obviously, that is one aspect of it, but I'm sure there's more to it than just that.
1: Yeah, the reliability concerns are very important. That uh, It is possible for monolithic kernels to try and sandbox their drivers, but at the end of the day, when you're compiling all these things into the same process, the same program, uh, there there are limits to what you can do. Mm-hmm. And so having, having a well-defined interface between different driver processes that means that they're not relying on each other in any way shape or form and we can swap them out very easily Mm -hmm. Uh, we're not trying to define something inside of a space where any driver could decide to go around those definitions Uh, and and i feel like there is there is a lot more work that has to be done up front to define an interface like that and, and this also continuously has to happen as we come up with new problems that can't be solved without having new functionality. But that was a very short period of time. Now we're in, in the place where we're just, we can just pump out drivers so long as we have data sheets for them, which is really the hardest thing is to get hardware companies to actually describe what their hardware does. They will dump in a huge file into the Linux kernel. And okay, here's this big ass file. It works, but it, it's not really portable. Mm-hmm. It's, it's specific to the Linux kernel, and it means the Linux kernel gets support for hardware uh, it, preferentially. Mm-hmm. And um, they don't send those things to BSD often, free BSD, open BSD. They're not, they're not sending their hardware patches there. There are customers that are saying, hey, we're using this on a Linux server. Can you support it on Linux? And they're like, okay, here's this huge-ass driver file yep. to, to put into Linux. And uh, the the mon- the monolithic model is easier for vendors to work in in that manner because they can just dump huge pieces of, of code into the Linux kernel and do literally anything they have to to make it work. Uh, but in the long run, what that means is that these huge pieces of untrusted code are all living together in the same space and because the information about the hardware is never public and is written by the vendor uh like realtech will write a driver for something where the datasheet is nda you can't you can't read it you can't distribute it unless you contact them directly for every instance every copy of it and that means that most linux kernel developers are never going to to see information about the hardware being handled by that driver but that driver coexists in the same process space that they're coexisting in mm-hmm. it's a it's a messy situation and bugs happen repeatedly in this kind of situation where um where drivers operate in ways that aren't expected and this can especially be seen with the nvidia driver which is kind of it still lives in the same space it's inserted into the process space but it comes from separate code. Mm -hmm. This is a very, very strange model. It's almost like a microkernel, but doing the opposite. You have a process that that is Mm -hmm. reading third-party code Mm -hmm. that nobody who created the Linux kernel is reading all the code that goes into the NVIDIA driver, unless you're talking about the new open-source driver they have, which is still using like a huge 500-megabyte blob in user space to control things, so it's not really open-source. They put this huge DKMS module into the Linux kernel, and it runs in the same code space. You have some modularity at the source code level, which I like improving modularity, but you don't have any review of that code that goes in the same code space. So having each process be um, independent, sandboxed, each driver, each each vendor, uh, and whatever weird stuff they need to do has to be through... A unified interface—it just really appeals to me.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So, do you see the monolithic design of the Linux kernel to be sort of a failing of the project, or more just a symptom of the circumstances it was made under, where you know Linus just made it because he had a CPU lying around, and the monolithic design was the easier way to approach it, as opposed to doing a more uh, microkernel design.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There, there were, of course, the the debates between Tinnenbaum and and Linus. They're and, very fun. <laughs> and to be fair to both of them, I don't think either of them really understood the other one's position enough to to talk intelligently about it. Because Tannenbaum wanted to create a research operating system mm-hmm. that that uh, that would that would embody the microkernel spirit, and Minix is definitely that. Minix three, amazing piece of work. And, and Linus created a, I think Linus is working more from a pragmatic standpoint of everyone else is doing monolithic kernels. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna do one too, but it's going to be open source. Mm-hmm. And, and that was the primary concern. So now it's built up so much momentum and there's so much involvement with the Linux kernel, it's impossible to change. And it's been that way for, for quite a long time. It would be impossible. And uh, I don't think Redox is necessarily going to succeed in drawing in any kind of vendor integration. Like, the the vendors love this model because you can create Android devices and put a huge blob into the Linux kernel and it uh, almost absolves them of any open source responsibility because if you look at like the blobs that these especially gpu vendors dump into the linux kernel it is some of the worst code i've ever seen and and there is no way you can look at that code and actually create a specification for the device from that code Mm -hmm. it is it is too nasty and 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 uh in many cases idiotic and and it often doesn't work and so they're constantly going back to the board all three of them: Intel, AMD, NVIDIA, plus all the ARM ones that are even worse. Like, like, uh, and I don't know what the ARM GPU situation is, but like Mali or whatever. They, they just Broadcom. These, these companies, they, they are absolutely terrible about it. But it works for them. Mm-hmm. They are not going to switch to a different kernel or a different model. They're invested in Linux, and as long as people buy their hardware, that's what's going to dominate. Mm-hmm. And I don't blame Linus for that. He did it for pragmatic reasons. And Tinnenbaum didn't have anything to demonstrate uh, that had the same kind of force. So if, you, if you're if you going to say, hey, guys, look at Minix. It's, it's possible to make a microkernel. Well, someone can just say, well, look at Linux. It has so many more devices supported. It has so much more software available. So maybe you're wrong. And in the end, I think microkernels definitely are a better design for reliability for safety and so many different reasons but if nobody is invested directly into cre- creating microkernels uh for especially for the desktop market uh then it's not going to happen
0: i think the best part about the uh the, the Lioness and Tonnenbaum debates where every single comment pretty much ended with and this won't matter when GNU Herd is done. Everyone was like, GNU Herd, this is gonna this is gonna be the microkernel that that replaces everything. And then that project we see how, where it is today. It's it's, you know, not in the best of states.
1: Well, yeah, it's uh it it's again a failing of of economic forces to if you if you can't find a business case for a microkernel then nobody's going to have the time to make a microkernel because mm-hmm. it takes significant investment to actually make one and i say that as someone who is making one mm-hmm. it's a it's it's a significant investment of resources and and i can get it as far as i as i can as a as a independent kind of thing but if I want to have NVIDIA drivers on Redox, I think there are very few ways to actually make that possible without directly involving Linux.
2: Right, right.
1: Which is actually something someone uh, working for Redox right now is working on. Mm-hmm.
0: What, like having some it, sort of like compatibility layer? Or...
1: Having, it's a little more than that. It uh-huh. is a virtual machine running Linux that gets the GPU passed into it. Uh and only the gpu so it doesn't get access to any other hardware and it runs as a microkernel driver and that driver then can basically take in commands through the mesa library on redox send those commands to the to the virtual machine running linux Uh that has access to the gpu whichever gpu it is and then that turns it into commands to the actual card um and it, it's, a, it's a way to kind of bypass the problem that GPU vendors in particular
2: mm-hmm.
1: are very bad at releasing documentation. The only one that I've found real documentation for that's public is Intel. And even then, it's a very difficult chip to control. And uh, I want to say Intel is going leaps and bounds above the competitors. AMD does a huge code dump into the Linux kernel and Nvidia of course does a huge proprietary blob uh, that's that's not part of any open source projects so we have to layer them kind of grade them in that form and fashion intel gets a b amd gets a c nvidia gets an f and and in, they intel could improve if they did if they did some work to kind of make it simpler to understand how to integrate an Intel GPU into an operating system. But again, they have engineers that they pay, and those engineers produce the Linux kernel Mm driver. So there's not really any business case for them to make the documentation any better. They do release a ton of documentation, but it's kind of all over the place and hard to digest.
0: So this running a Linux kernel, basically... (laughs) So let let me just understand. So you're basically running... The, at least the idea would be to run the entire Linux kernel as a driver, just to basically bootstrap the drive, the like Nvidia driver, AMD driver, something like that.
1: Yeah, it would be a customized Linux kernel. So right, right. it would be uh, essentially, yeah, it would be Linux plus a. Uh, it's almost like what Windows is doing with WSL to to pass through uh, graphics, but they're doing it the opposite direction. So they have a, a driver that they insert into their Linux kernel mm-hmm. that runs on WSL. And that driver takes in all the stuff from the Mesa library going through EGL or whatever and converts it into DirectX commands mm-hmm. that are then sent to the Windows driver. Uh, and this is kind of a similar mechanism, but but opposite. Mm-hmm. Uh, where we have Redox running as the, the hypervisor, Linux is running as a VM, mm-hmm. Linux gets the GPU, Linux mm-hmm. has drivers for the GPU. We are, we are sending uh, the EGL commands through to Linux and the Linux Mesa library handles them. So mm-hmm. our Mesa library would, would just be to forward those to the library running in the, in the VM. Mm. And that potentially would give us uh, perfect graphics acceleration on on all the gpus that linux can support including on nvidia gpus because we could run the nvidia binary driver on top of this linux kernel
0: huh that's really cool so what sort of response have you had with redox like i i know a lot of people were excited for you to be here to talk about this but like from your personal experience like has it been like a relatively positive sort of feedback you got from it or yeah just just how how's how's it all going yeah
1: very positive um but at the same time it's really hard to find people who are interested in collaborating on this space because it is a low level thing and it is a hobby thing but luckily we've gotten a few very good contributors that that and we've gotten enough donations that now we can do a regular program where every summer we have, and this summer we're doing three different people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we have people apply, and then we accept them, and we pay them a, a pretty good amount to spend the entire summer working on Redux. And uh, yeah, I, I feel like right now it's at this kind of stage where we can perpetually advance on maybe one use case, mm-hmm. like using it on a very simple laptop platform or desktop platform Mm -hmm. and ignoring GPU acceleration for the meantime, just doing software rendering, Mm -hmm. which is still pretty quick if you're not talking about games. Uh, And even if you are, there are a few games that run pretty well on Redox with software rendering. Like I was, uh, I don't know if I can legally talk about some of them. (laughs) Uh, I made the joke that every time I I emulate Super Mario 64, Ah. I take my, completely 100 percent owned by me cartridge and just put it on top of the computer (laughs) i don't actually do that but i do own the game but nintendo doesn't agree that that's enough you have to own the game and nintendo has to bless with their magic fucking i don't know process like anoint with oil and (laughs) and tap with the fucking sword on on both shoulders the the console that you're using to actually run the game right yeah
2: yeah
0: yeah
1: um but super mario runs really well inside of redox um the the ported version it's like sm64 ex ah
0: that one yeah the the extra we don't like that to exist version
1: (laughs) yeah but they can't do anything about it for some reason which i think is great uh i'm i i just i cannot ever bring myself to give nintendo any more money like Mm -hmm. i'm not gonna buy a switch i'm not gonna buy any games for a switch if there's a game on switch that i want to have i'm just gonna find another one of the fucking hundred thousand games that run on pc to play right how many games run on a switch like a thousand maximum it's uh consoles have been getting worse and worse and worse in terms of the number of exclusives they have too
0: which is fine. PC by me, Please so well, release them on PC.
1: Yeah, I'm so happy that like PlayStation has got into releasing almost all of their exclusives on PC.
0: Yeah, Microsoft and they run on Linux. Microsoft realized that they finally own Windows and they can release yeah. games on Windows.
1: Now exclusives for them are just releasing it on Windows and on Xbox.
0: Which you know, besides the anti-cheat yeah, issue, which sometimes occurs, most games work. Like you can just if it's published by Microsoft, it's going to yeah, be on Windows, which is good.
1: I can run it on 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 Linux almost all the time. Mm, mm. There are very few games I haven't haven't been able to run on Linux. Mostly VR stuff.
0: And then and then the Sony, like, hey guys, let's yeah. let's let's have Final Fantasy sixteen and fund that and have it only be on PS Five.
1: They'll great. bring it in. They've brought in everything, just late. Oh yeah, they'll it'll, learn.
0: It'll happen eventually. But they'll learn. They did pretty...
1: Spider Man. I was really I was really um. I didn't expect them to do that, but then they did. Mm. Then they brought in they brought in Uncharted, Last of Us. Although the port for that sucked, but whatever. They tried. Yeah. God of cool. War. There's a lot of games. Yeah. Uh, Sony has basically made it their their mech- method to to port all of their popular titles to PC like a few months after, or uh, six months, or a year after, so they can saturate it with sales. Except what Bloodborne. Really, uh, Oh man, it's it. It has to be coming.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what they're doing. Like, sh- surely From Software wants to do Bloodborne on PC. Maybe like a Bloodborne Prepare to Die edition, or just a something. Like, how have we not? How we, How is Bloodborne? Or at least like a PS5 like 60 FPS version. Like, how are we still stuck with 30 FPS Bloodborne? Yeah. Like, I don't understand.
1: So there's a Twitter account. Mm. It's just is Bloodborne on PC. It has 52,000 followers. And uh, as of 15 hours ago, they say no, it's not <laughs> been announced for PC. So. Oh, wait, but there's I, plenty of people asking for it. it.
0: It's not Twitter anymore, it's X.
1: Yeah, I think if it's a Sony developed title or mm. a, a studio that they interact with a lot, they'll have more say. But for for that, it would be it would be up to the from software to actually port it. Which well, you know, I would throw my money at the screen anytime any of these things come and they work on Linux. If they if they don't work on Linux, I return the fucking game.
0: Well, there's I a two even, hour
1: return time on Steam, so I just return it.
0: With with Bloodborne on PC, I wouldn't even complain if they just did what they what happened with Demon Souls, where it was handed off to another studio because Demon Souls yeah. was handled perfectly fine.
1: Yeah, usually it's. The thing they don't want you to know is that all these consoles are just PCs. At the end of the day, it's just a PC with static hardware, right? It's just a AMD even- CPU with RDNA two graphics. It's it's like, it's a it's a fucking Steam Deck, right? It's the same hardware.
0: <laughs> well, even more so nowadays. Like there was uh, early on with the PS five, there was like this big deal about the PS 5s SSD. And it makes so many games possible. It's, I hated it's, that. It's, so it's literally much. a you can take that. SSD out, stick it in your computer, reformat it, and it will work. Like it's just yeah. off-the-shelf consumer hardware. I
1: hated the the fucking fanboys who are who are just saying PC is so slow. Look, PlayStation has a faster disk than PC now. I'm like, no. Because PlayStation is just a PC. Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. So whatever is there is available on PC. If maybe AMD got got you know their custom chip into it a little bit before but that wasn't even the case it's ridiculous it's Mm. um yeah the and what it was was that they were claiming the compressed speed was 10 gigs per second or something i'm like well you can compress stuff on pc too Mm. it's not against the law or anything and a lot of games do that already Mm, mm. Uh, so yeah it was Built-in compression, which then Microsoft did the direct I/O thing, where where the concept is that you have the NVMe drive directly feeding data to the PCIe mm. graphics card over the PCIe bus, and that's something that that might work. Mm. But again, that was available on PC too, and Linux can support that kind of thing too with SR IOV, I think.
0: The one di- like one major difference you have with the consoles is the big shared uh memory cache rather than having your separate GPU memory and then system memory it's all just one big thing that does make certain things work a little bit differently but that's the only yeah. major difference
1: yeah still doesn't make the PS5 any faster <laughs> I guess it's just the, the, the laws the, of physics can't be
0: the thing i hate about the state of like gaming right now is we're at a point now where the consoles are so similar to a PC, yet the ports we are getting are the worst they've been in so long. Like, we had the PS2, which was this dumb emotion engine thing. Then we had the PS3, which is this stupid cell processor. Right, then we had completely the PS2. different architectures. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're these nonsense... Uh, like, the architectures are just completely ridiculous. The PS3 was being used as, like, in... <laughs> There's this, like, there's this story from years ago where... I don't remember what organization it was, but they bought a bunch of PS3s and turned it into a supercomputer because of this ridiculous mm-hmm. architecture that made no sense for game design. But now that we just have PCs, the ports are garbage. I don't know how this has happened.
1: Well, I will tell you exactly why, because I know. Okay. Uh, because they're so similar, Right. you literally click a fucking button... <laughs> And most engines will spit out a PC game. Yeah, that's fair. Will the PC game be good? <laughs> no, <laughs> because you've locked down like the frame rate and resolution for the console, or you have one of the dynamic resolution changing things that they're using, so that they can hit 30 FPS, but they change the resolution. Right? Uh, it's uh, you have you go from a very static ecosystem to. One where technically the same code mm. is really close to working on PC, but then you have so many things to account for. Like you have users who want to run at 144 hertz, which I do. Yeah. You have users that are using weird aspect ratios like a widescreen monitor uh, or an ultra wide, wide, wide. screen. Or super yeah.
0: widescreen, where it's like nobody's 32 connecting by those 9. to a PS5. <laughs> yeah.
1: So game developers are pretty much targeting 1080p and 4K. And often they're using like the same code for both. So it's like, ah, well, we'll just do the 4K path all the time and then downscale it to 1080p. Although really 4K on most consoles is upscaled from like some resolution in between 1080p and 4K. Mm-hmm. But but the point is that they hard code those things. And then to actually make a good PC port, you need to decouple those things and actually make them configurable. Mm-hmm. And so I know I'm in for a good ride when I launch a game and it doesn't even ask what resolution to run at. And then I check and it's not running at the resolution of my monitor. (laughs) I know I'm in for a good, good ride.
0: Yeah, that's fun.
1: (laughs) When I go into the settings and there's no settings for frame rate, Mm -hmm. I know I'm in for a good, fun ride.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Because I have a 144 hertz monitor and I'm like 90% sure that you can't divide 144 by 60. Or by, or by thirty, mm-hmm. right? It divides by seventy-two. Um, the point is that they are if they're running at sixty uh, or running at thirty. I'm just not happy.
0: No, yeah i I can tolerate I can tolerate sixty. Like sixty is it? It's it's not like I I have one sixty five hertz display. Sixty is not good, but it's tolerable 30 30 is rough like unless it's some game where like it's a grand strategy where like the only thing that's moving is your cursor like that's the only case where 30 is remotely tolerable
1: it's painful yeah and um some people believe that 30 fps on a console is somehow magically better than 30 fps on a pc and that's just not true at all because again they are the same thing
0: there are still people that think that 30 FPS is fine. Like, there was a game recently, I don't remember what the game was, um, someone's gonna tell me, where, like, the Xbox One version, X- whatever the Xbox, what are the current Xboxes called? They're like, they, they were making a big deal early on that it was gonna run, I think they're saying it was gonna run at, at least 60, and then for the launch, it was actually gonna be running at 30 and there was all of these people in the comments be like 30 is fine i play games at 30 it's great like <laughs> stop that's
1: probably like every single game that's been released for xbox one in the past <laughs> i think cyberpunk well,
0: cyberpunk like, running at that's not that's that was barely running at 30 at launch like, exactly that like
1: wasn't even 12. they had to recall the the ps4 and xbox one editions because they were so shitty I can't blame them, because PS4, man, it's... Like, you look at PC hardware, that's, like, 10-year-old hardware Mm. by now. So, it's really difficult to fit into that. I do like
0: the PS5 is backwards compatible. Right now, my PS5 is basically a PS4 emulator.
1: Exactly. The PS5 is is, uh, just a PC that you can run less software on.
0: Yeah. Like, the (laughs) game I've been playing most is Final Fantasy XII, which is an HD remake of a PS2 game. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I've been doing the Final Fantasy 7 remake.
0: Ah, nice. Pretty good.
1: I run it on Steam Deck. I run it on on my big-ass PC. And it runs fine. I think most of the time those ports are actually okay.
0: I would like to have a Steam Deck.
1: Valve yeah. I would
0: to sell it in Australia. I would have to go through some, like, importer or, like, do some other... Why don't you have thing.
1: a Steam Deck? You have a PS5 but not a Steam Deck?
0: Yeah, but, it, look, if Valve started selling it in my country, I would buy it.
1: Everybody complains. Like, sell this here, sell this there. You can, you can get it. I'm I don't sure. I'm not know where I can get it. Just send me 600 bucks, <laughs> and I will send you the 300 buck version.
0: <laughs> yeah. Via
1: mail that's all right. In an envelope. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It'll get there in like two weeks. I
0: don't trust the money's gonna get there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> hey, if it's lost, that's on USPS. That's on the postal service. That's yeah, not on I've... me. I everything, swear I sent it.
0: Everything I've heard about USPS, I don't want to trust them with $600 in an envelope.
1: Yeah, but it's like compared to the other carriers. I feel like it's a requirement. Anytime you want to handle somebody else's stuff and move it to somewhere else, you have to drop it at least five times. And if there's an arrow, it has to be dropped the opposite way. Uh, fragile, keep this way. Nope, drop it on that side.
0: I, I did hear this funny story about this um this bike company uh they were having like a ton of uh a ton of like breakages and a lot of customers were really annoyed when they started shipping to the us so what they did is change the box to make it look like a flat screen tv and put a picture of a tv on it all of a sudden their reports of damages went down by like 80 percent.
1: oh yeah yeah (laughs) we have to do a lot of creative things to ship thaleos To ship our desktop line because we ship them with the gpus installed Mm. so we actually have a shipping brace that is extra super duper and we didn't used to have this so there were issues where where customers had gpus that were pulled out of the slot and like how Uh. does this happen because we did drop tests (laughs) and the same things were not happening in normal drop tests like Mm -hmm. The only way you can do this is if you drop it from 12 feet or drop it down a, a flight of stairs or something like ridiculously. And then it, we came up with a GPU brace. Mm-hmm. And so that screws in and it's like the GPU is like held in by like eight different points. Just like completely grabbing it doesn't have anywhere to go. And then now it it seems like it ships. Okay. But yeah, they, they see the fragile sign and they, I guess we don't have a logo of it being a desktop computer, but I I feel like if we did, it would still be dropped just because just out of spite, <laughs> like like some PlayStation gamer would drop this PC. Brody Brody would be handling it. Like oh, stupid thing doesn't have Bloodborne yet. I'm dropping it.
0: I play most of my games. I like this thing's a, a <laughs> PS4 emulator. I play most of my games on PC.
1: <laughs> yeah, I thought about getting a PS. 3 or something because mm. it can run it can run PS2 and if you get the right version right, there's yeah, like the, 5 original different ones, versions yeah. you have to get one of the fat ones that was the first one and it actually has the hardware for a PS2 and a PS1 mm-hmm. I believe included in the same package then you can run PS1 games and PS2 games at native everything mm-hmm. uh, off of a hard drive so I thought about that but uh, yeah I, I don't think I need yet another M platform like that
0: <laughs> well on that note we've gone way off topic of the main stuff but it is what it is it tends to happen um, <clears throat> let's end off the show so let the people know where they can find you where they can find PopOS and Redox and everything else you want to mention
1: I have a website that links everything it's s-o-l-l-e-r dot d-e-v solar dot dev <laughs>
0: Mm-hmm. here we go and
1: yeah so that links everything uh it links to redox system 76 pop os and all of my personal links please give me money on patreon <laughs> for my patreon please follow my soundcloud the money on patreon <laughs> I had to check is...
0: for a second to see if there actually was a soundcloud there
1: <laughs> no there's not a soundcloud uh,
0: there's a Patreon. not though. yet
1: if i could make make a little bit extra money for redox The Patreon is 100% used by Redox, so Mm -hmm. money there goes into new developers there, which goes into fun stuff that probably won't compete with Linux, but, you know, it's fun.
0: (laughs) Well, this was a lot of fun. I I really enjoyed this. Um, For anyone who noticed that I might have been like... Coughing a lot throughout. The- I, I did mute my mic most of the time. I am currently recovering. I-, I made the mistake of going to an anime convention. And when you do that, mm. 99% of the time, you're going to get sick. And I got sick. So.
1: You're just not going enough. That's a good point. You need to go every time there's an anime convention. Well,
0: I would, but they were shut down because of, you know, the whole. Yeah, then you'll get, the get your immunity up. Thing.
1: You just gotta get, yeah, get your immunity up.
0: Mm, mm, mm. Well, i don't go
1: to conventions man i just i can't handle it like you say i get sick every time yeah
0: and it's is a that a? I uh, i hope you feel better yeah I, i'm i'm pretty much most of the way back it's just slight cough uh mm-hmm. yeah, yesterday was way worse but i guess it's two thirty in the morning right now so the day before whatever it doesn't matter uh anything else you want to mention or is it is it just that
1: that's it. Uh, keep an eye out for Virgo. We're making our own laptop in-house at System76. It is an open-source, GP, uh, not GPL3 <laughs> anymore. We, we settled on the CERN Open Hardware License, mm-hmm. which is basically GPL for, for hardware. Wow. And it is, uh, as far as I know, the first open-source x86 motherboard. So we will see. Wow, that that's goes. really
0: cool. Uh, Yeah um as for me my gaming channel is brodeon games right now i probably finished off black Mesa, so i'll be i reckon i'll be playing portal with ren so come check out with that i'm terrible at puzzle games ren's terrible at video games so (laughs) that'll be a mess uh also probably still playing through final fantasy 16 it's a really good game highly recommend it released on pc already uh yeah uh, main channel Brody Robertson. I do Linux videos there, six-ish days a week. I have no idea what it'll be out. By the time this comes out, I'm way ahead in my like my podcast recordings. I need to take a break off the podcast and bring things up like you know closer to when things release. Uh, but there'll be something there. Hopefully not more Red Hat stuff, but there probably will be more Red Hat stuff because <laughs> that never stops. Uh, and this channel, if you're listening to the audio version, you can find the video version on YouTube at Tech Over T, and you can find the audio version pretty much anywhere. You can find an audio podcast. There's an RSS feed. Stick it in your favorite app. I like AntennaPod. It's great. Uh, I'll give you the final word. What do you want to say?
1: Uh, I want to say that we need more open source in this world and things are not moving in the right direction. If you want to support it, you have to pay for it. You have to buy it. You have to show your love for it. You have to show everyone everywhere that you're using Linux until they are so annoyed with you that they use it just to get you to shut up. So. Please keep doing that.
0: I don't think you need to tell people to do it; they're going to do it anyway.
1: (laughs) Especially let them know about Arch Linux. Exactly.
0: Yep. Exactly. Awesome. Well, I'm out.